Good to see you all this morning on this uh, beautiful July day. Um, it is uh, hard to believe that we're smack dab in the middle of summer. I was just thinking the other day, um, actually it was last night, uh, outside, I think it was last night, uh, I, the day's all running together now, but I was sitting around my fire pit and I was thinking, this is nice, fall is right around the corner. <laughs> so. Don't mention it, yeah. Um, uh, fall's my favorite time of year. I like the summer, too, um, and, uh, but, but I am glad that it's not 95 degrees either. So, Well, uh, so glad that you're here. We're continuing our study in the book of Colossians. And if you were here last week, and even if you weren't here last week, uh, Pastor Ryan and Pastor Greg led us through what is arguably the grandest, most supreme exposition on the person of Christ in the entire Bible. It is a great Christological, theological passage about the person of Jesus. And in that passage, starting in chapter 1, verse 15 and following, the apostle Paul portrays Jesus as the creator and the sustainer of all things creator of the entire universe and sustainer of the universe, that he is supreme, that in everything he may have preeminence. He is the head of the church. He is the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might be preeminent, that he might be supreme. And we learned also that it was the fullness of God that dwelt in him. In fact, I believe it says, for it, for, for it was pleasing to God for all his fullness to dwell in him. And in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So with all of that, it's easy to see that the better we know him, the more we will be like him. And the better prepared we'll be to proclaim the gospel and to defend the gospel. In our text this morning, we're going to see that the Apostle Paul reveals his motivation and his mission in regard to the gospel. And in so doing, he's going to continue to refute the, the, the false teachers who were, in a nutshell, basically saying Jesus isn't enough. You know, Jesus is okay, Jesus is good, you know, he died for you and all of that, but you need something else, and Paul's going to continue to refute this. And there are two main subjects or themes in our verses this morning, and Paul kind of goes back and forth between the two of them, and they are simply this, his heart for the Colossians, and the second is the mystery of Christ. Would you pray with me before we continue? Father, thank you for our time together here this morning. Thank you for your word. Um, Lord, thank you for this amazing little book and for your servant Paul who penned these words that we might come to know you and to love you and to want to serve you with our whole heart. Lord God, we pray that this morning that you would just open up our ears and our minds and our eyes that we might hear and see and know what you have for us in your word. Holy Spirit, 
Be our teacher and our guide, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know about you, but um, I love mysteries. Um, I love, especially good, classic movie mysteries. Um, but I really got hooked, I think, on mysteries when I was a kid. Because I used to, this is dating me too, I used to listen to the radio. And, the, and it, I can't remember what night it was, but there was one particular night, every week I would listen to Mystery Theater with E.G. Marshall. Does anybody even know what I'm talking about? A few hands, look at it. Yeah, um, it's great. And I used to love it because it always began like this. It was like a squeaky door opening, you know, and and E.G. Marshall would welcome you into like journeys into the macabre. And and these were these were like plays, but they were done on radio, not on stage, not on video, not on TV. Um, And I used to love watching or listening to these stories. Um, Since then, I've kind of graduated to movies. And speaking of movies, I don't know if you know this, but here's a a shameless plug. The Kappa Summer Movie Series is back. And for those of you who don't know, these are movies that they showed down at the Ohio Theater. Um, I think it's on Friday nights or maybe over the weekends. But they have a whole bunch of different kinds of movies. And this year, they have at least three mystery movies that are being shown. The Man Who Knew Too Much... Murder on the Orient Express and North by Northwest. And so um, uh, I'm sure we're going to hit at least one of those this summer. In the book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul also talks about mystery. Except this is a real life mystery. A truth that God hid in ages past but has now revealed to his saints And in it, we learn that a true knowledge of the mystery of Christ leads to maturity and stability in Christ. A true knowledge of the mystery of God will lead to maturity and stability in Christ. If you have your Bibles, you can turn over to Colossians chapter 1. If you'd like, we have Bibles on the back tables there. Feel free to grab one. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version primarily this morning. Starting in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up with his lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Now, you don't have to go very far before you're just stopped in your tracks. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings. Who in their right mind rejoices in sufferings? In pain, in distress, in hardship, in difficulty? Well, apparently, the Apostle Paul does. And Paul is referring specifically to his imprisonment in Rome. 
And it's probably hard for us to, to understand, but he's in this dark, dank prison, and he's in chains. And he's writing or dictating this letter to the Colossians. The phrase, in my flesh, refers to the physical pain he is currently experiencing. That's pretty straightforward. But what does he mean by, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction? I mean, that, that kind of seems like what Paul is saying is, Christ hasn't suffered enough, or that his suffering wasn't complete, that his death on the cross was not sufficient. But that's not what Paul is saying. Paul doesn't mean that his sufferings were insufficient. And in fact, the, the word refers to the suffering that Paul endured for the sake of Christ and for the church. But because Christ is the head of the body and the body still suffers, Christ feels our sufferings. He knows our sufferings. Just like the brain registers pain when a part of the body is injured. I think perhaps in, in the book of Acts we have maybe the best picture of, of what Paul is getting at here. Um, before he was Paul, Saul was on the way to Damascus because he was persecuting the church. He was persecuting believers. And God says... I want this guy. And so he stops him dead in his tracks and he has a conversation with him. And in Acts chapter nine, verse four, it says, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And so you can see that even though Jesus' physical sufferings on this earth are over, his body continues to suffer, and he feels it. And as long as the church is on this earth, we will suffer. Scripture makes it very clear that we will endure persecutions and hardships and suffering, and Christ understands I love how the New Living Translation translates verse uh, 24. He says, I am glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. The New Century Version says this, that I am happy in my sufferings for you. There are things that Christ must still suffer through his body, the church. I am accepting in my body my part of these things that must be suffered. See, Paul was able to rejoice in his sufferings, first of all, because he saw himself as a prisoner of Christ, not as a prisoner of Rome. He rejoices that he is counted worthy to suffer on behalf of the church. And whatever circumstances Paul found himself in, he never lost sight of the sovereignty of God. He understood and believed that everything that he was experiencing in life was first filtered through the hands of God. 
before it ever touched his life. And that he knew that God was working out all things for his good in his life. That's why he could write in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. You know, what's so amazing about Paul, especially in contrast to to me and my life, is that Paul never had a pity party. Paul never thought he deserved better. He knew that following Christ was an invitation to suffering. And I think about how much of my life is spent trying to get out of suffering, to avoid it at all costs. Facing the, even, even facing the prospect of death, Paul doesn't lose sight of Christ. He says in Philippians chapter 2, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Is this not an attitude foreign to us? That Paul would rejoice and be glad in his sufferings on behalf of the church. He was going through everything that he went through so that people like you and I could hear the gospel, so that we could respond to it and be saved and become like Christ. Not even death could rob him of his confidence and joy in Christ. And he wasn't alone. Paul was not an anomaly. The early church considered it a privilege to suffer for Christ. Back in the book of Acts, if you remember in chapter 5, the the apostles had been arrested. They escaped. They got arrested again. They were then beaten and then released. And in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, we read, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They weren't rejoicing because they were free. They were rejoicing because they were considered worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. And then Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 1, For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here that I still have. Like what George MacDonald said once, he said this, he said, the Son of God suffered unto death, not that men might not suffer, but that their sufferings might be like his. And thus we become more like Christ. 
So I, I've been asking myself this question this week is, is why was suffering a cause for joy? Now, obviously, um, I, th- I think on the surface, we can probably come up with a couple of reasons pretty easily. But John MacArthur suggests that the New Testament gives us at least, at least five reasons for rejoicing in suffering. And so what I want to do is share them with you. The first here is suffering brings the believer closer to Christ. Suffering brings the believer closer to Christ. Remember what Paul said, that I might know him. My heart's desire is to know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. To really know Christ, we have to be willing to experience what Christ experienced. Not just the good, but the bad. Not just the resurrection, but the sufferings that preceded the resurrection. Second, suffering assures the believer that he belongs to Christ. When you're persecuted because you're a Christian, because you're proclaiming the gospel, because you're living a life that is antithetical to the world, because people see Jesus in you, it is an assurance that you belong to him. Third, that suffering brings future reward. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, Paul writes, he says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This world is not all there is. The amount of time we spend here on this planet is minuscule to eternity. I don't even know if you can register it On a timeline, it's that short. And eternity is that long. Fourth, suffering can result in the salvation of others. And I would add, it not only can result in salvation of others, Jesus, of course, being the ultimate example of this, but that suffering can also result in the encouragement and strengthening of others. Most of you know what our brother Charlie has been going through. And ever since I've known him, which hasn't been that long, um, he's been a tremendous encouragement to me because from the very beginning, I knew that he was battling with terminal cancer. And to see the joy of Christ in him, week in, week out. Many of you didn't even know he was struggling with cancer. It's because he didn't, he didn't walk around with, with, with woe is me. Look at my suffering. Look at what I'm going through. He kept his eyes. He is still keeping his eyes on Jesus. What an encouragement. That when I see that, it gives me hope that I can face whatever difficulties God throws my way. And of course, one of the One of the beautiful things that happens when you suffer is is that God rallies the troops around you. And you get to experience the love of Christ through his body in ways that maybe you've never done before. The fifth reason John MacArthur gives us for suffering as a cause of joy 
is that suffering frustrates Satan. I mean, the thief comes but to kill, to steal, and destroy. He, he wants to make life miserable for you. He doesn't mind inflicting pain in your life in the hopes that you will do what Job's wife told Job to do, curse God and die. And when we don't, and when we praise God in the midst of the storm, it frustrates him. What do I got to do to shipwreck their faith? And there's nothing you can do. Not when, not when our eyes are focused on Jesus. Not when we understand that God is sovereign over all and that he will accomplish what concerns me. MacArthur goes on to say this about serving Christ, that a Christian who has lost the joy of the ministry does not have bad circumstances, but bad connections. You do not lose the joy of serving Christ unless your communion with him breaks down. You want to be able to endure pain and sorrow and suffering Make sure those connections don't break down. Make sure that you stay in communion with God. And Paul is a great example of that for us. He knew his suffering wasn't in vain, and he connects his sufferings for the church to the church in verse 25, as you can see. He says, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. Now, the first thing to notice here is the word I is emphatic. So it's as if he's saying, he's like this, I have been made a minister of the gospel. I was given this stewardship by God on your behalf. Now, this stands in stark contrast to the false teachers Paul here is saying that those false teachers were self-appointed guides, but I was made a minister. I was given this stewardship from God for you. Paul is throwing the entire weight of his apostolic authority behind the gospel that was first proclaimed to them through Epaphras. So why did Paul receive this stewardship? Well, it tells us to make the word of God fully known. And the word translated fully there means to proclaim completely, to make complete or to fill or to finish. You see, Paul declared the whole gospel he held nothing back, and the Colossians fully heard it from Epaphras. And contrary to the claims of the false teachers, there's nothing left to be added to it. Paul communicated the gospel, the word of God, fully. Epaphras heard it, took it back to his hometown where he then proclaimed it, just as Paul did. And then the people received that message. So let me ask you, 
In light of Paul's apostolic calling and apostolic authority, if you were living in Colossae at the time, who ought you to listen to? Paul or the false teachers? I think it's pretty obvious. You, you listen to the one sent by God, commissioned by God, to proclaim the word of God fully. Who ought we to listen to? Now, I, I know, real quickly in your mind, say, well, God, of course, we ought to listen to God. But why don't we? There are many, many Christians who are listening to voices other than God. One of the problems that I see in the church is that believers often tend to gravitate to teachers who claim to know truths that nobody else knows. Some claim to have visions and dreams. Some claim to be visited by angels and even by Jesus himself. They claim to have spiritual insight to the meaning of certain texts or, or a deeper understanding of world events or worse, to have a fresh word from God, which is just another way of saying, I have some new revelation, something in addition to God's word to share with you. And sadly, Christians, by the thousands, listen to their sermons, buy their books, go to their events. Folks, let me be real, real clear with you. If you don't hear anything else this morning, hear this. There is no new revelation from God. Everything that God wants you to know is right here. Now, this isn't all there is to know. The scripture tells us that, that the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children, but the secret things of God belong to God. We are not God. We are not omniscient. We're never going to know all that God knows. But what he wants us to know, he has revealed to us. He has held nothing back from us. We don't have to wonder, why is God not giving me all that I need? In fact, Scripture tells us that he has given us everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness. Now, I will tell you that it is an honor for me to stand here, usually week after week, proclaiming God's word to you. But it is a task I do not take lightly. I think the other elders know this is a passion of mine, proclaiming and expounding God's word, but I know that I am going to be held accountable to how I handle God's word. And I know that I'm going to incur a stricter judgment as a result of that. So that's why when I'm getting ready to preach, I first study for myself. I have to learn, what, do, what does God's word say? What does it mean? What does it mean for me today? And then I, I have to then think about how can I communicate this in a way that, it, that I am faithful, that I accurately give you God's word and declare it fully to you. I, like Paul, have a stewardship from God. And when I stand up here on Sunday mornings, I am not here telling you what you want to hear. 
I am endeavoring to tell you what God wants you to hear. There's a big difference. And I know that I'm fallible and that I can make mistakes and that's where I rely on you (laughs) to tell me so that I can course correct. But to the best of my ability, I want to handle accurately God's word. In making the word of God fully known, Paul is revealing the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. So what is it? What is the mystery? Well, look at verse 27. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you the hope of glory. Wow. This could have been a sermon all by itself. In fact, three words in this verse could be a sermon by itself. Christ in you. And each of those words, each of those words reveal three previously unknown truths. And I want to unpack it for you quickly. First word, Christ. Christ. No one expected Jesus. No one. The Gnostics looked to wisdom and to knowledge for salvation. The Jews were looking for a warrior who would uh, overthrow the Roman government and restore Israel to power in its rightful place in the world and to its former glory. They did not expect a suffering servant. That's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, for Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The mystery has been revealed and his name is Jesus. The second previously unknown truth is in. In. Christ in you. This speaks of the indwelling presence of Jesus in the believer's life. No one ever envisioned that God would come to live in the people that he came to save. Never even entered their mind. But yet, Jesus speaks of this in John 14. He says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, catch this, and will be in you. The spirit of God, the spirit of Jesus, the spirit of truth, the helper has come to reside in you. And he is the guarantee of our salvation. He is the guarantee that we will live forever with Christ when this life is over. 
The last word, the last mystery in this phrase, Christ in you is the word you. Now you have to remember who Paul was writing to. He was writing to the Colossians. He was writing primarily to a bunch of Gentiles. And what Paul is saying is is that you, you Gentiles, are also in Christ, and Christ is in you. Salvation is not just for the Jews. God always intended to bless all the families of the earth, but nobody had a clue that God was going to take both Jew and Gentile and put them together into, into one family, into one body called the church. This came as a shock to the Jews and a surprise to the Gentiles. But in redemption, God not only reconciled us to himself, but to one another. He tore down the dividing wall of hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians chapter three, when you read this, You can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the same promise in Christ through the gospel. Folks, we... We were once far away, separated from God, alienated from God, but God has brought us near by the blood of Christ. The phrase, the hope of glory, refers to the day when all of God's children will receive their glorified bodies, when our bodies are made to be like Christ's. If ever there was a time we need to hear this message, it's now. It seems like our country is just being torn apart at the seams. People of different color pitted against one another. The gospel, Jesus, is our only hope. Christ came not only to reconcile us to God, but to one another. And and it, it is possible. I've seen it. And I think that we can try all these different ways of trying to, you know, make things right, but to me, you can't improve on what God's word says is that Christ in you is the hope of glory. He's our only hope. And that's why we need to proclaim the gospel, that it's not just about getting your sins forgiven, it's about being reconciled to one another. It's about being a part of God's family, brothers and sisters linking arms together in service of our great God and King. But for that to happen, we've got to do what Paul did. Look at verse 28. We proclaim 
Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all the energy that he powerfully works within me. And Paul uses the word proclaim again, which means to declare, to make known, to announce, or to tell. This was his passion. But in his proclamation, it consists of two different things. It consists both of warning and teaching. And the word for warning there means to admonish, or to rebuke, exhort, or advise in view of sin and judgment. Now, you guys know what a foghorn's for, right? Use a foghorn. I know you know what the foghorn's for. But the foghorn is, is blown because if you're out at sea, you can't see anything in the fog, and you'd like to know if there's another ship approaching or if there's a rocky shoal or you're about to hit the lighthouse or whatever it is. The foghorn warns you to stay clear, to be aware of your surroundings. For those of us that don't travel on the sea that often, you guys know what a traffic light is for. You know what a red light means or a stop sign. It means don't go. Don't proceed into a, a dangerous, busy intersection when you could be hit by cars that are coming the opposite way or perhaps uh, the red light and the ding, 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 ding at the railroad tracks, right? So you know what that's for. Sirens warn us of tornadoes, of fire, and other danger. So how much more should we warn people of the dangers of sin and the coming judgment? And Paul isn't just talking about unbelievers. He's talking about believers as well. And as much as people may not want to hear a warning from us, we got to love them enough to warn them about sin and encourage them to repent. But Paul doesn't just warn them. He teaches them. He instructs them. He imparts skills and knowledge. And wisdom is needed here because wisdom and teaching, or excuse me, warning and teaching need to be done with all wisdom. Wisdom refers to the practical application of truth. Teaching always precedes doing because we must know before we can do. But this is where I began to really become convicted. Paul says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that powerfully works within me. Why? To what end? Well, look back at verse 28. That we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now, this parallels what he said back in verse 10. To walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Paul's goal was not evangelism. It wasn't teaching. It wasn't mission. His goal was to take those once dead in Christ and present them to God complete in him. Now the imagery of verse 29 is that of an athletic 
contest. The Greek word for struggling literally means a place of contest or stadium. It's where we get the word agony from, um, which is kind of fitting when I think about the wide world of sports. You know, the thrill of victory, the agony of defeat. Well, agony is not all, doesn't always result in defeat. And Paul here is telling us he is in a spiritual fight. Oh, and by the way, this same word was used in reference to Jesus in the garden as he was praying. Paul here is laboring, striving, fighting hard for them in prayer. He uses the same word in verse 1 of chapter 2 and again in chapter 4 in reference to Epaphras. There he says, Epaphras, who is one of you, always struggles on your behalf in his prayers. So chapter 2 begins the same way chapter 1 ends, with Paul's deep struggle for them and his desire to see them stand firm and not be led astray by these false teachers. And his heart, again, stands in stark contrast to those teachers. Look with me at Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all that have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Remember, Paul's goal is to present everyone mature in Christ. And to that end, he gives us three intermediate goals. The first is simply that their hearts may be encouraged. The second is that they would be knit together in love. And lastly, that they would have the full assurance in the knowledge of the mystery of Christ. I like how the New American Standard reads there. It says, a true knowledge of the mystery that is Christ himself. And why does Paul desire this? Verse four, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Paul understands that false teaching is often very attractive. Many Christians have been led astray by charismatic leaders, eloquent sophistry, and fine-sounding arguments. As Christians, we need to be more discerning. We need to think critically about what we hear. We need to weigh it against Scripture. Alistair Begg says this, and, and I think it's so apropos. He says, there is nothing so dangerous as feeble reasoning applied to fast talking. 
we need to examine all teaching for the truthfulness of its content rather than the attractiveness of its packaging. Paul wants his readers to stand firm, to be stable in the faith. Colossae was a city in decline in Paul's day. It had lost its significance. It was being overshadowed by neighboring cities, and yet Paul took the time to write this fledgling church. He obviously felt that it was important to do so. He takes a a genuine interest in them, and that's why in verse 5 he says, for though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is just amazing to me. Because here is Paul in a Roman jail, in chains, thousands of miles to, from home. And he's writing to a group of people he's never even met. And he tells us that he is struggling for them in prayer. Clearly, you see Paul's heart in this. He has a genuine concern for them. He longs to see them standing firm in the faith, disciplined and stabled. And he knows that living in the true knowledge of the mystery of Christ will lead them to maturity and stability in Christ. That's why he wrestles as he does. Folks, that's my prayer for you. For each one of you, that is why the elders of this church take great pains to proclaim the whole gospel to you, to proclaim God's word fully to you, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? So that we can present you mature in Christ one day to God. That's why we do what we do. I'm sure this summer I'm going to enjoy seeing one of those uh, mystery movies down at Kappa. But I'm more excited to see us fleshing out the real life mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory. I hope you are as well. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word to us and for your servant, Paul, and for the Colossian church. Lord, they, in many ways, are a model for us of how we are to live. We're not immune to false teachers creeping in. Lord, we want to be prepared. We want to know you. We want to understand that the Christian life is not about Christ and us, it's about Christ in us. And Father, I pray that we would meditate this week on each of those words, that we would understand the significance of being in you and you in us. And Lord, how you have brought together in one body, one family, people of so many different backgrounds, people of different races, 
people of different cultures. Lord, we thank you and we praise you because only Christ could do this through his shed blood. Use us, we pray, for the furtherance of your kingdom and all of God's people said, amen.